Welcome to the Healthy Returns Podcast, where I sit down with founders, investors, and executives innovating in health tech, fitness and wellness, and human performance. My guest today is Daniel Fairman, founding partner at Vitality Ventures and director of finance at Forum Brands. Vitality Ventures is an early-stage venture capital syndicate investing seed through Series B in the future of human health and performance. Forum Brands acquires and grows early-stage businesses at the intersection of consumer brands and wellness. Daniel also runs one of my favorite podcasts, Subscribing to Wellness, where he explores his passion for health and wellness derived from his days as an NCAA tennis player at Yale. In today's episode, we discuss Daniel's investment criteria for CPG brands, CPG 1.0 versus 2.0, and how companies can make wellness more accessible. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy today's episode. Hey, how's it going, Daniel? Welcome to Healthy Returns. Excited to be here, Nolan. Yeah, this conversation is long overdue. Um, We originally connected um, a few months back and, you know, we share a similar background in that we're, we're both collegiate tennis players and are now really kind of immersed in this health and wellness um, space. So I'd love if you could give a background on yourself to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Maybe I'll take it way back because I I love talking about tennis and it's probably uh, particularly relevant for us. Um, Because a lot of, I mean, a lot of what I do today really actually delineates from my experience as a tennis player. So yeah, I grew up in San Diego. You know, I think my entire adolescence, everything I can remember kind of revolved around tennis. Um, As you can relate to traveling around the United States, playing USDA tournaments in all these random cities like Kalamazoo, Michigan, and Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, and through that experience, like, you know, became pretty passionate about health and wellness. Wasn't that serious about diet, nutrition, exercise as kind of like a teenager, but um, was lucky enough to get recruited by Yale for tennis, went over there um, in 2011. And to be honest, had like a, a pretty unique experience that really ignited my passion for health and wellness. So you know, vulnerably, I came in as a five-star recruit and honestly had some pretty high expectations for myself as a freshman, um, but truthfully didn't really make the starting lineup my freshman or sophomore year, um, which was a big blow to kind of like my ego, my confidence. Um, And so during my sophomore year, summer in between sophomore and junior year, I kind of made it my mission um, to completely transform my diet, nutrition, exercise routine as a means of coming back for my junior year um, in the best shape of my life and hopefully kind of getting back into the starting lineup and having more success as a, as a D1 athlete. Um, and it honestly completely worked. I worked with a trainer every day that summer, um, worked with a nutritionist, and obviously it really trained, like it changed my physical composition. It also changed my mental health as well, like just generally like having that kind of diet uh, made me feel sharper in the classroom when I got back to school. It, it made me feel better about relationships. Just a, a lot of ways really transformed my life. Um, and so, you know, honestly, I went on my junior and senior year to start in every match to win the second most matches on my team, less important stuff, but just became really passionate um, through that experience about health and wellness and, and knew that long-term um, I wanted to either be operating or investing in the health and wellness sphere. You know, I was eight. I was 821 at the time coming out of university. I wasn't exactly sure how that would manifest itself. No one's, not everyone's careers are linear. Um, but I spent about five years operating at three of the bigger consumer packaged good companies in the world. Uh, started at PepsiCo, later on at Danone. Both roles really focused on 
um, finance, strategic finance, brand strategy, et cetera. And then in my last role was at, in CPG was focused on product marketing and innovation at ABM, but really working on global brand expansion, focused on Budweiser, Corona, Stellar, and Michael Ultra. Um, kind of reached an inflection point where I was seeing a lot of up and coming health and wellness centric brands being acquired by the strategics that I had worked at. Felt like a lot of those brands were more mission aligned to my personal passion for health and wellness um, and got the opportunity to work at a venture capital firm for about a year and a half uh, called Selva Ventures that really shared like my passion and thesis for investing kind of in the future of health and wellness through consumer brands, food, beverage, personal care, and so on. Um, that was just an unbelievable experience. Uh, got to work for an incredible fund manager named Kiva Dickinson um, and really carried on that passion into business school at Stanford. Um, focused heavily on entrepreneurship, venture capital, got to consult on a few startups, got to continue getting investing experience at a firm called BMG Partners. Um, and so coming out of B school, which is actually pretty recent, I'm now focused on um, two main roles, uh, more on the operating side. I'm director of finance at a GSB founded company called Forum Brands. Um, we are acquiring uh, lower market consumer brands at the intersection of consumer and wellness. And then my second hat, which is probably more relevant for this conversation is I'm GP of Vitality Ventures, which is a venture capital syndicate dedicated to investing in the future of human health and performance. Um, we can of course talk more about that, but our kind of sweet spot is seed to series A. We typically can write anywhere between 100 to 200K um, and our three focus areas really are consumer brands, health tech um, and sports tech. So yeah, that's, that's me. When you were taking us through your journey as a junior and collegiate tennis player, um, it kind of makes sense why you're still operating in the space. But my question to you is, um, why consumer health as opposed to kind of operating within, you know, maybe the entrepreneurship and operating within, um, you know, any other side of traditional healthcare? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Both of my parents are physicians. Um, my, my dad is a doctor. He's an anesthesiologist. My mom is a nurse. My sister is also in uh, internal medicine. Um, and when I got to Yale, my dad was really pushing me on pre-med. Uh, I had, started in organic chemistry, had done okay, but didn't really like it. And then I'd also uh, gone to the hospital and tried to like witness some surgeries just to see what it was like. And I hated it. Um, hated being in the hospital, hated like just seeing like the, the procedure, like kind of freaked me out. Um, and so I kind of just shied away from healthcare. And, and at the time I also just felt like I was having such tangible interactions with health and wellness centric brands that were really like changing my life. Um, and, and with healthcare, right, I just luckily was pretty healthy at the time, never really had to think about sort of the flaws and in inequities within the healthcare system at a younger age. So just honestly, never truthfully like gravitated to, to that kind of side of the sphere. Nonetheless, you know, I am spending a lot more time now trying to educate myself on health tech um, in healthcare services, because I think, you know, there are definitely opportunities there. Um, but nonetheless, like definitely feel like my expertise is more on the consumer brand side, consumer health side. Um, so for that reason, probably I'm, I'm always going to spend a bit more time there. Sure. Sure. I mean, you left out one part of your background, right? Which is your, your co-host for a yeah. podcast of your own called subscri subscribing wellness, um, which I've listened to a ton of episodes and 
you guys have a lot of great um, founders, especially CPG founders that operate in the health and wellness space. So um, anything you've taken away from that whole experience in terms of how it's shaped, how you look at health and wellness CPG brands today? Yeah, for sure. Um, first of all, you know, starting a podcast, it's really hard. Like, I think there's some stats that maybe 90% plus don't make it past episode 10. I don't know. So I know you're already like basically there. So congrats on that. I'm already, I'm already definitely a listener to healthy returns and, and I'm reading kind of the, the newsletter every week. So awesome stuff. Um, and we're very collaborative. So it's cool to, it's cool to see who you've had on. Um, yeah, you know, you learn so much from founders. Just each time I go through a diligence process, each time I meet a new founder, I try to like become a student, um, even though I might be forming my own opinions about the business simultaneously. Like I always try to absorb from people who are obviously incredible builders. Um, for me, like, you know, there's some investors who are really focused on investing in trends. Um, that's never really been like my criteria. Like I, I really like to break down kind of a few fundamental internal business criteria every time I'm looking at a business. So uh, for me, unit economics, especially within CPG are kind of like one of my lead criteria. Um, you know, the beautiful thing about, you know, a software company within healthcare is obviously there's hosting and there's platform fumes, but they're not selling right a tangible unit with that kind of variable cost structure. And so, um, within CPG, like unit economics come first. Um, I think it's category agnostic within CPG as opposed to like what a, a reasonable gross margin is from an expectation perspective. But often in food and beverage and looking in the early days, it's something between hopefully 35 to 40, 45, even if it's um, particularly profitable, maybe like in an ingredient or oil or condiment category. Um, so gross margins are, are like a first check. And, and a, a big reason for that is it obviously has to do with cash burn, but as an investor, right, if the company I fund goes on to need less and less capital in order to scale because the unit economics are so strong, then my investment is going to experience less dilution, right? And and if there's a good outcome, I'm going to own more of the company than I would if the if the business was capital inefficient. And so that's why for me, um, unit economics are crucial. It's funny, there's there's definitely some converse and you know investors who may former point of view that, oh, this actually this company has actually a competitive advantage because they raise so much capital. No one else actually has the ability to raise this much capital, um, which is interesting. Like that's almost kind of like the lemon perfect approach as an example. But for me, that's just not my, uh, my kind of criteria. Like I, I do really like capital efficiency. Um, number two is it's, it's size of market, but in kind of a different way. I'm not obsessed with going and looking at like what the size of a market is really hammering total addressable market or TAM. I just need reason to believe that something can get really big. Um, it could be because this brand has a really different way of approaching communications that's going to bring consumers to trial the category for the first time in its history. Like if you think about what Mudwater has done to kind of the mushroom space, like people weren't necessarily, it wasn't that like mushroom coffee alternatives were a big space when, when, when Mudwater entered. But the way that they've approached um, communicating with consumers and educating consumers has allowed them to build a big business and take share of consumers from coffee. Um, so I like I like to just have some kind of reason to wrap my head around that makes me feel like a big business has the ability to get huge, but it doesn't necessarily have to come down to um, size of existing market. Number three is founding team. Like I won't talk too much about that, but one thing I do maniacally is I do reference checks. And when I do reference checks, I ask very objective questions. 
um, to really gauge like a foundry's potential ability as, as a founder to scale a business to an exit level um, size. And then kind of like the last one I would say is just in CPG, since there's largely a lot of, um, there, there's really a lot, not a lot of IP. Uh, it's very hard to create a competitive mode around product. Like brands can create moats around brand um, and, and, you know, product differentiation, but for the most part, you're not going to find IP unless you're in food tech. So I really do try to find some kind of, you know, form of differentiation, whether that's in the brand communication, the product ingredients. Um, I think differentiation is so, so hard to find now that all the hot segments are getting quite fragmented, but I do try to find something that I can hang my, my head around that, that makes me feel like the product is going to stand out on shelf um, and appear different to, to the consumer compared to what, what's already out there in the category that I'm looking at. Sure. Sure. Now you mentioned how you invest kind of trend agnostically, which I think is really important when investing in the health and wellness consumer space, because um, there will be new trends literally every single week, whether it's diet, you know, fitness, um, yep. whatever it is like that. So um, would you say your approach is then more rooted in, again, your personal experiences, but also tying in products and brands that are really backed by science? Yeah, like I, you know, it's funny. Whenever I look at the supplement space as an example, like the first diligence area I even do before I'll even consider coming into something like that is just, is there clinical testing that has taken place that proves that there really is the effect that the, the supplement is communicating on the human body? Um, so I do think like clinical proof of ingredient efficacy is really important. And that's something that, to be honest, has kept me away from CBD. It's really even kept me away from adaptogen drinks because um, mm -hmm. there just hasn't really been adequate literature showing that supplements as such actually have the effects that they claim to have. Um, so yeah, like I'm definitely into clinical efficacy. It's something that I'm always diligencing for those kind of products. Um, in terms of just like category dynamics, like like I said, I, I prefer to go with the tide as opposed to against the tide. Like I'm probably not going to be investing in high sugar candy anytime soon. Um, but it isn't a, a criteria that's necessarily like super high on my list. Again, it kind of comes back to those core fundamentals I, I kind of discussed. And then it is a nice to have if you're obviously going with the tide as opposed to going against uh, something that feels like consumers aren't gravitating towards generally. But would it, it's not like a deal breaker um, for me if it's not like the hottest category. Got it. Got it. And you kind of explained your personal connection to health and wellness brands as a former collegiate um, athlete. I know athletes in general tend to gravitate gravitate towards health and wellness. Um, just it's it's in their nature, right? They whether it's for their sport or the, for the rest of you know the rest of the aspects of their life, they, they want to improve on that front. What other demographics do you feel that CPG brands and specifically um, kind of target their, you know, their messaging towards? Yeah. I mean, I think right now, and this is, this is a pretty broad demographic, um, but I think like Gen Z's right now are, mm -hmm. are probably like, one of the hottest demographics for CPG brands. If you look at the research, um, there's a lot of you know proven fact points that basically say that of any generation, Gen Z spends more of their disposable income on health and wellness. 
whether that's like their Equinox membership, um, whether that's like their delivery meal kits that are super healthy. Um, Gen Zs are spending much, much more than our parents were spending at that age um, on health and wellness. And so, you know, if you look at a few brands, I'll give you an example, like Bubble, it's a personal care brand, skincare brand, pretty relatively accessible price point, like mid-tier price point, almost exclusively communicating to Gen Z. Um, you know, that's something that's really resonated quite nicely. And I think is a big reason why they've been able to achieve success thus far is like, they've just really gone after that audience that spends more on, um, you know, health and wellness centric products. So Gen Z is a demographic I'm excited about. Um, I do think that interestingly, the baby boomer kind of like elder generation in a way has been a bit ignored. Um, because they're less digitally native and brands for so long, we're getting started through D to C. It was like, how do we communicate with this generation? They don't, they don't, they're not on Instagram. They're not on TikTok. But I do think kind of with the rise of Ozempic, which seems to be targeting kind of that older population, maybe between the ages of 35 and 60, um, there is going to be a potential surge in demand for health and wellness centric products from that generation that might be pretty material. Um, and so I think finding creative ways to really target that elder demographic is going to be a new challenge that brands have an opportunity to, to kind of face and take advantage of and, and drive volume through, um, potentially in line with, with kind of the rise of Ozempic, which I think could spread to seven to nine percent of the population over the next 10 years. Um, okay. So, yeah. And, you know, with, with Ozempic, I think, you know, we were talking a little bit offline about this idea of CPG 1.0 versus CPG 2.0. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love if you could maybe tie in Ozempic to how it's kind of fueling this, this shift from the 1.0 to 2.0. Yeah, for sure. And I think, so CPG 1.0 versus 2.0 is my made up term. Uh, I wonder yeah. if anyone's ever thought about it this way, but so for me, CPG 1.0 is like maturing and it's still very healthy and there's brands that are riding the CPG 1.0 trend, but CPG 1.0 was taking parts of the grocery aisle that are traditionally unhealthy, let's say mac and cheese is an example, or waffles, um, and essentially making those parts of the grocery store better for you. Not necessarily good for you, but better for you than the um, you know incumbent brands. So if you take Kraft mac and cheese and you see what Goodles is doing with better for you mac and cheese or what Bonza is doing compared to conventional pasta or Kodiak cakes is doing compared to conventional waffles. If you lived your life eating Kodiak cakes and Goodles, you probably wouldn't be living that healthy of a life, but you'd definitely be living a healthier life than if you were just eating Kraft mac and cheese and Eggo waffles, right? And so that's CPG 1.0. Um, and there's plenty of brands that are in the midst of that that are scaling that I believe will generate incredible enterprise value and potential exits to strategics. And there will continue to be brands that build within CPG 1.0. I'm still seeing them all the time. I saw like a, a Greek yogurt um, alternative for pizza bread, for pizza, like pizza dough bread. And Kali Power had done that, you know, a while back as well. So there's just, there's going to continue CPG 1.0. I think CPG 2.0 is like the next evolution, which is actually good for you um, versions of food. And actually good for you, it, it typically means what I call category one foods, which are foods that are unprocessed and from nature, whether that be from plants or from animals. Um, and so to give you an example of a brand that I think is doing a pretty good job playing into CPG 2.0 that, that we've spent some time with, actual veggies. Um, it's a veggie burger, but it has the cleanest ingredient label of any veggie burger in the history of 
um, of the industry, right? Compared to a Dr. Prager's and so on. Um, very clean ingredient label. You'll recognize every ingredient. It's their ingredients that come from plants. Um, and so I just think that, you know, we're in the earlier days of 2.0, but 2.0 is going to be largely about eating real foods as opposed to eating better few versions that may have better ingredients than the alternatives, but aren't necessarily good for you. Um, and so that's what I'm excited about. And, and that's almost what I'm, what I'm commonly looking at when I, when I, you know, now diligence a product. Um, yeah. And I think that to our kind of side conversation earlier, Ozempic is going to really accelerate the manifestation of CPG 2.0. Yeah, uh, no, I completely agree. And when you talk about, you know, better for you versus good for you, um, my mind immediately goes to plant-based meats. Um, sure. you know, some, some of these companies, um, yes, they're plant-based, but extremely processed, you know, whatever exactly. it is, soy products or, or a lot of additives, whatever it is. Um, yeah. Are there any specific plant-based, uh, you know, meat companies that you think do a good job in kind of, you know, sustainably sourcing and being really. Yeah. Prepared? So I just, yeah, I just talked about actual veggies. So I'll talk about a different one. Actual veggies. I wouldn't call them all meat. Like I called them yeah. a true veggie burger. Meaty, mm -hmm. um, M-E-A-T-I. They're a mycelium-based um, meat alternative. I think they're knocking it um, out of the park. Like, mm -hmm. I think their products are good. I think the mm -hmm. ingredient label is great. The price point is still at a bit of a premium, but that's how it's going to be until they achieve scale. That's just the cost of doing business right now for, for their scale. Mm -hmm. um, so if you haven't tried Meaty, highly recommend it. I believe they just went possibly nationwide at Target. That might be a stretch, but uh, that's what I think I remember reading recently. Um, mycelium, it's a much cleaner ingredient base to like create clean meat alternatives than trying to use soy or chickpea it often requires a lot more preservatives, gums, um, and so on. Whereas with mushroom based meat alternatives, it tends to be, um, more meat like and requires less preservatives and artificial, artificial ingredients to, to kind of bring it to life. Um, mm. So I'm kind of bullish on kind of these mycelium-based products. I think they're kind of like the best alt-protein options. And then I'm really curious to see what happens with cell-based. Um, yeah. You know, in theory, cell-based, if it's done properly, it, it should taste like the same thing as conventional meat. Um, who knows what the long-term health effects of eating lab-based meat will be? We'll just have to see. I, I truthfully won't be the first guinea pig in line trying um, those kind of meats, but I do think that... that if it works, it does have um, potential to be like the real thing and obviously have a tremendously good impact on, on the planet. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I still haven't tried cell-based meat. Definitely want to try it one day. Um, but on the alt-protein side, I think meaty is, is definitely one of the best. Yeah, I'll definitely have to give that one a try. Um, you know, I'm, especially with CPG brands, I'm super fascinated about how they go about marketing um, and how they go about tailoring messaging to certain audiences. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we've seen so many celebrities, you know, come out with their own brands, um, mm -hmm. health and wellness brands, because, you know, they already have that following so they can kind of just, you know, push whatever product it is um, to, to that audience. Mm -hmm. I'd love if you could share both the pros and cons this, because I know there are both, um, you know, in terms of having a celebrity either, you know, be the face of a certain CPG brand or have them, you know, be involved in some other way? Yeah, it's a really good question. Very relevant. Um, 
for kind of what's going on in the industry right now. Look, I am, I'll say this, I'm cautiously optimistic about celebrity brands. Like I've seen so many waves in CPG where, you know, something is working, everyone jumps on it. And then the arbitrage opportunity is essentially lost. Like if you think of DTC in the days where you could just acquire customers at a pretty affordable price, okay, everyone's going to go buy ads, try scale Shopify brands, and then a CAC is going to go up for everyone, right? Like, um, it's not like the kind of thing where, you know, you can just go out and start, start a celebrity brand and you're guaranteed to scale. Here's what I do think the right way of approaching it is. Um, I think you need to essentially prove out before you bring on a celebrity that you have a strong product through strong repurchase rates um, and, and reasonable unit economics. And if you can, you know, get the brand from zero to potentially two to three to even four million without that celebrity, and you have really healthy signs when it comes to retention and repurchase rates, you know, that, that's a good proof point that the brand can stand by itself on its own legs. And then if you can find the right celebrity partner to take it to the next level of scale and really benefit from the benefits you're going to get um, through scaling down OPEX as a percent of net revenue because of the, the organic awareness that you get from the celebrity, then I think it can work. I probably will never invest like pre-revenue in like a macro influencer celebrity brand just because I think what, what happens a lot of times with those brands is like you go from zero to 10. And then once you tap out of your core following, if the product isn't good enough you, and you can't get repeat purchase from non-core followers, then you kind of start to phase out. I'm really, really curious to see what happens with this Kourtney Kardashian brand called Lemmy. I know it's doing well thus far, but I'm curious if they reach a tipping point where like the non-Kardashian following consumer you know, isn't necessarily going to like buy into the product, um, you know, after maybe you get to 10 million. So yeah, like that's kind of my opinion. Like I'd rather see brands start off kind of having healthy economics repurchase rates, um, then if appropriate, bring on the celebrity to kind of accelerate that next level of scale with less kind of burn on advertising dollars. Um, but we'll see what happens. Like I could be totally wrong. I, I saw Mark Andreessen. Uh, had a quote in an article the other day that was like, I think that like the future of consumer brands might be fully through celebrities. Um, so who knows? We'll see what happens. But I would say probably a little more bearish than most people, but I'm not totally bearish. Yep. Now, it's funny you brought up Kourtney Kardashian because actually the reason why I asked um, the question about celebrities in the first place was because I was equating celebrities, um, you know, kind of being the face of CPG brands to when Kim Kardashian did... Uh, the Pranuvo, a whole body MRI scan, and she posted it on various social media platforms. And that sparked the whole, you know, debate over, you know, if it's actually effective, if it's cost saving. Is it accessible? Is it accessible? Yep. yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I like, I like your stance there and that, you know, not being completely sold on, you know, the, the celebrity in terms of just because they're a celebrity, this brand is going to work and this brand is going to scale. Yeah, you brought up a good point too with Pranuvo. Like I I think one of the biggest barriers, right? And one of the reasons why I get excited about investing in like health and wellness brands that are at unfortunately usually a premium price point to start off in order to really preserve unit economics is like, you know, with inflation especially, um, products that are healthy and already priced at a premium are now at a super premium. Yeah. Um, and it just makes a lot of these products inaccessible to the masses, kind of how the price point for Pranuvo makes it largely inaccessible to the masses. I'm not sure if health insurance is, is covering part of that yet, but I don't think it is, um, or it is at least effectively for most people. Um, and so what, you know, one of the reasons I love what I'm doing and, and I get excited about some of the investors that you've had on, on the podcast is just like 
we need this, this flow of capital in order to empower these businesses to scale to a point where they can drop price point to make these products accessible truly to the masses. Because um, at the moment, there's just a lot of great products out there that really only can bring in that like high high income demographic. It just so happens that people who care about health and wellness actually tend to be higher part of kind of the the income, um, you know, the the income level. But like, yeah, I, I I just think this this part of the category from an investing perspective is so important just so we can get prices down in the long term. That's I, I love that point. Um I absolutely agree. Um that's I actually I was I was gonna bring that up next and I guess you know, to, to tie everything together, I always think of wellness as, unfortunately, in this country, wellness is a privilege. Um, it's not yeah. a right. And yeah. I think about, um, I love wearable techs. I mean, I, I, I've been wearing a Whoop for like the last three years, for example. But I mean, it's extremely expensive, um, you know, for a, as a monthly membership, regardless if you pay for a year in advance. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see a path right now for a lot of these health and wellness brands to be able to do what you said and scale to a point where they can, you know, lower unit economics and then have the actual product be more accessible to people. So what would your advice be to, you know, CPG founders and, you know, teams that are, you know, kind of have this as a core mission, but are struggling to, to make that happen? Yeah, it's a tough question, but, but, but a good question. Um, You know, one thing, that I think you have to do in the early days is try to set up your price pack architecture as if you were gonna go launch in conventional in a profitable manner from day one. Um, you know, the way brands still grow and, and and this is a fine path and it works, but you know, you start off in Whole Foods, in natural, super premium, you obviously can sell at a super high price point. And again, the, the, the shopper who sells there tends to be higher income, so it's fine. Um, and, you know, you do that because you're, you're achieving the best gross margins possible in doing so. But again, then you're, you're kind of leaving out a whole segment of the population that's selling at Wal- that's shopping at Walmart, Costco, Target, and so on. Um, and so what gets me excited as an investor is if in the early days, I can see that a brand from a price pack architecture perspective can work in conventional from day one and also give me confidence that it'll, that it'll obviously work in Whole Foods. Um, so I think one thing entrepreneurs can do earlier is they can, one, either think through the, the price pack architecture that it would take to be set up for success to launch in conventional earlier in the life stage of the brand, or actually if they have the scale and the executional ability to deliver volume on time and full to a thousand Walmarts in the U.S., go do it earlier than, than you might have thought so. Um, go get the product in front of that middle income consumer lower income consumer earlier in the life stage of the business if, if your unit economics can afford it um you're going to build more brand awareness amongst a wider demographic and you know if you have a health and wellness centric product that's working in walmart well it's definitely going to work in whole fridge from a unit economics perspective um and you know and hopefully you also have kind of the brand you know the brand power to stick out on shelf in, in a whole foods where you're probably going up against um a lot of competitors who are health and wellness centric as well like to give you an example of a brand that like I love that I think has the chops to do well in nearly like any kind of channel. Like I think Graza is this olive oil. It's great quality olive oil, really differentiated bottle. I know they've done well in natural. I'm not sure where they're at in conventional, but I think they've done a nice job. They have the unit economics to go scale kind of in any um, you know, any kind of 
retailer. So yeah, like my advice to brands in short is just really plan your pack price architecture early in a way that you're ready to kind of go scale and conventional earlier than you might have thought you had to, um, you know, five years ago. We talked uh, a lot about CPG brands and products um, on this episode, which I'm so happy we did because you've given so many great insights into that space that you invest in. Um, but I know that, you know, with Vitality Ventures and being a GP for that syndicate fund, um, you make investments within wellness that span outside of um, food and beverage. So I'd love to just close with, you know, maybe a couple categories that um, you're bullish on investing in and kind of what your thesis is for those. Yeah, for sure. Um, I could talk about a couple. Um, yeah. I think... Again, I, I won't call this, I want to call this personal, personalized wellness. Mm -hmm. It does have a CPG aspect in that, like you are getting like a, like a tangible product, but I think just like any way where you can really tie strong personalization credentials to a product experience, um, with, within wellness is going to drive like a different level of differentiation, loyalty, and retention. So like one company that, that I invested in is called LO Health. Um, and for example, I've seen you know, a lot of gummy brands coming out. You know, there's, there's a great gummy brand called Groons, right? That, that's a greens alternative to Athletic Greens, awesome brand. There's another one called Create that I really like. It's a creatine gummy. So gummies are a thing, right? But, you know, what I love about Elo is Elo is really one of the first gummy brands to truly bring a personalized gummy to the consumer. Um, we kind of saw Gainful do this with protein powder and, and Elo's first product was a personalized protein powder to accompany the protein powder. Now they've launched what they're calling personalized gummies. There's there's thousands and thousands of different permutations for the kind of gummy you can get, but it's a seven layer gummy with each layer offering a different kind of nutrient. Um, so I think this that's a great example of, of per, the, the crossover personalization and wellness. And I think that's an awesome angle to to both drive trial and retention, um, giving the consumer something that feels, you know, much more personal than just some greens powder that that's the same for everyone. Yeah. Um, Number two, and this is an area that I'm still learning a lot about personally, but that I'm intrigued by, um, is recovery technology. So I've seen obviously like the rise of hyperice, you know, TBD, what actually happens with the company, but it seems like they've obviously done a pretty nice job scaling the business. Um, you know, we're looking a lot at infrared therapy. We're looking a lot at cold plunge. We want to understand more of the science behind it. You know, I nerded out, a, you know, a long time ago on the Huberman episode related to heat and cold. Um, there's a nice brand called Edge Edge Theory Labs that, that we're taking a look at right now that, that's really kind of democratizing um, the, the cold plunge and, and bringing a really premium, nice product to, to market. Um, so recovery tech is something that I continue to be intrigued by, continue to learn about. You know, you also see that in the rise of four wall units like, you know, Restore Hyper Wellness and, you know, and med spas and so on. So, so recovery tech is something interesting. And then also kind of tying to that is I think aging um, there's a few funds that have been set up now that are specifically dedicated to aging. Um, and I think that like, there's this, again, this, this whole demographic, maybe 60 plus that you know, the biggest issue with that demographic health wise is the minute that you fall at that age is it's kind of the, the beginning of the end, unfortunately. Um, and so one amazing business that we ultimately missed on, but, but that I really think is awesome. It's called bold. Um, it's backed by a great group of investors and what they're doing is they're creating virtual exercise classes for elderly people so that, you know, they can really prevent the likelihood 
that they fall in the future. Because a lot of times what happens as you get older is you just become so much harder to get to the gym. You just want something that's convenient and easy that keeps you in, in good enough shape that you can walk around your house and, and not be at risk of falling. Um, and so I think just in general, like this aging trend is really exciting. I'm curious to see how it's approached on the nutrition and supplement side, but I'm also excited to see how it's being approached more on, on the tech and fitness side as well. Daniel, this has been such a great conversation. Um, I kind of along this whole health and healthcare and wellness continuum, um, your expertise within like the CPG specifically has been, um, really great to hear from. And, you know, I haven't had a guest on yet that has had the same expertise and experiences investing and operating in this space. So, um, really thank you for, for the time and thanks for coming on. For sure. Big fan of the pod. It's been fun to actually learn more kind of on the healthcare side from, from some of your prior guests. And, and I look forward to, to continuing to, to listen and, and hear who you were going in the future. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, before you go, if you can just shout out your socials, where people can follow, you know, the investment you're doing yeah. in your personal life, whatever it yeah. is. So forum brands, our website, I think is, it's just forumbrands.com or you can Google forum brands. The syndicate is vitality-ventures.co. Um, and then on social, I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, Daniel Fairman, uh, Instagram as well, Daniel Fairman, probably, probably talking a little less on Instagram, but, uh, LinkedIn's probably more on my main channel, but definitely check us out, vitalityventures.co. Um, if you're a founder, don't hesitate. Would love to talk to anyone. Uh, thanks for the time, Nolan.